morning. It's good to be with you again. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to be looking at the second half of the chapter, really more than the second half, but starting in verse 13. Uh, I want to speak to you this morning about Jesus' love, his love for his people Israel, his love for his church. And I want to do that from a text that someone once called the unloveliest chapter of the gospel. Uh, another said, I sometimes wish that this chapter did not stand in the Bible. Uh, Matthew 23, the second portion known as the seven woes, uh, may not be a section you turn to regularly for warm and fuzzy devotional thoughts. Uh, and I will confess that as both a Christian and a Jew, I struggle with this passage. Uh, as a Christian, I struggle with the sharp and biting rhetoric of Jesus that we'll read in just a moment. He's speaking in a way that is undeniably harsh, blind guides, brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs, etc. We live in a time of increasingly ugly and divisive public speech. It's easy to wonder, is Jesus doing that too? Is Jesus okay when other people speak this way? As a Jew, I worry about the way that passages like the one we're about to read have fueled the history of Christian anti-Judaism and what has been called the teaching of contempt. Historically, it was a small step from the anti-Judaism that conditioned most of Eastern European Christianity, or sorry, most of European Christianity, to the violence of blood libels, pogroms, and Kristallnacht. We're living again in a time of resurgent anti-Semitism. The world's oldest hatred has been on the rise in the U.S., in Europe, certainly uh, in Israel, we're aware, after October 7th. This passage needs to be handled in a way that won't further sinful attitudes of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, of which the church in her history has sadly played a part. But while I struggle with it, I think that the text, which I really am about to read to you here in a moment, uh, I think it really matters. I think if we handle this text with care, we will see something very important. We'll see that Jesus is both a fierce and a tender Savior. One who loves his people and calls them to live an authentic life of faith. Uh, and so let's read this passage soberly. Let's listen carefully. And let's reflect prayerfully uh, on what the Lord Jesus says here uh, this morning. Matthew 23, verses 13 through 39. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. 
How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Uh, three points this morning that will help us get our minds around uh, what I think, again, is a difficult passage. What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? And what is Jesus feeling? What is Jesus doing? What is Jesus saying? And what is Jesus feeling? Well, let's start with what Jesus is doing. Uh, this section I said is called the seven woes. And the key to understand what Jesus is doing in this passage is the word woe. A woe is a prophetic act. Prophets spoke woes. They announced coming judgments. And in speaking woes, Jesus is standing in the long line of Israel's prophets. A prophet in Israel spoke for God, but he was also a part of the people against whom he spoke. So a woe is not angry speech directed at another group. It's not Republicans talking about Democrats or Democrats talking about Republicans. A woe is announcement of judgment directed at your own group, at your own people. And therefore, the dominant note in the word woe is lamentation. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 10 refers to a scroll, a scroll excuse me, with words of lamentation, mourning, and woe. Those are like synonyms. Think about a parent's response to the grave sin of a child. There is anger at sin, but there is also profound grief. Grief at the heavy price that sin exacts in your family, grief at the terrible toll the child you love will have to pay, that's woe. We'll see Jesus' grief most clearly at the end of this section, but it's important to highlight it as we start. Uh, one last thing about woes. Woes were addressed to the people in power. The woes here in this chapter are not directed toward Israel as a whole. They are not directed toward Israelites in general. The goal is to call leaders to repentance and to warn the people at large not to get, up, not to get caught up in the same sinful patterns as those who are in charge. Jesus is speaking to a particular group of leaders inside of Israel and not to all Israel. So what is Jesus doing? Jesus is speaking as a prophet with profound grief to his own people, urging the leaders of the people 
to turn away from sin. Uh, that means it would be wrong to read this passage, as people often do, as if Jesus was a Christian critic of Judaism or the Jewish people. Uh, it's so easy for us now, based on where we are in history, to think about Judaism and Christianity as two separate religions. You know, what is a Jew? Well, someone who's not a Christian. What is a Christian? Somebody who's not a Jew. Uh, it's so easy for us to think of that as two separate religions that we forget how imposing that back onto the New Testament is anachronistic. Jesus is a Jew engaged in an intramural dispute with Jewish leaders about how Judaism should be lived out by the Jewish people. Jesus is not attacking Jews as an ethnic group of which he was a part, nor is he attacking Judaism as a religion as if he were a Christian pastor. Jesus is making a prophetic critique of the religious establishment, a critique that the church should hear and reflect on. It is not a critique which a largely Gentile church should exploit as a way uh, to disenfranchise the very people that Jesus came to save. So that's what Jesus is doing. He is speaking woes. What is Jesus saying, though, in those woes? Jesus is saying something that all religious people need to hear. He is speaking about hypocrisy. The term hypocrite appears six times in the second half of Matthew chapter 23. And hypocrisy, I think we all know, is just a kind of religious pretending. We present ourselves as being more than we really are. We demand from others more than we demand from ourselves. We are concerned more with outward appearances than we are with internal realities. We might not even realize that we're doing these things because the first person that we've deceived by our hypocrisy is ourselves. There are seven woes here, and they can be broken down into three pairs and a conclusion. So let me try to go through those briefly with you. Uh, in the first pair, Jesus speaks woes against leaders who make a relationship with God harder than it has to be. The scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus says, shut the door of the kingdom. Uh, that means that their applications of Torah were difficult, strenuous, impossible for the poor in Israel to follow. Back in verse 4 of chapter 23, Jesus describes them as binding heavy burdens on people while not lifting a finger to help them. At the same time, though, they went to great lengths to make proselytes. But Jesus says instead of making people better, they actually made them worse because they ended up encouraging in others this same hypocrisy of which they were guilty. Discipleship and the life of faith is difficult. But it is never difficult 
in a way that undoes what Jesus says about the simplicity of entering the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says that you turn and you enter the kingdom like a little child. It's the recognition that we enter with no rank, no claim, no status, nothing in our hands other than our own need and weakness and dependency. We see in the first pair that Jesus was opposed to making a relationship with God more complex than it needed to be, either by making it so hard that the common man had to say, I could never do that, or by bringing people into a life that was so demanding it encouraged falseness, insincerity, and faking it with God and other people. In the second pair of woes, Jesus speaks woes against people who played with religion and with theological distinctions. People who, as they say, put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Jesus raises here two legal matters, oaths and tithing. Uh, imagine if I were to say to you, uh, let me borrow $100 and I swear on my mother's grave that I will repay you. And then when it becomes time to get your money and you ask for it, I say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, a vow is only valid if I swear on my mother's life, not on my mother's grave. Well, that's what these leaders are doing when you hear Jesus talk about swearing on the temple versus the gold of the temple, swearing on the altar versus the gift on the altar. An oath is a solemn promise. It's an acknowledgement that God is a witness that you are going to do the thing that you said that you're going to do. But the scribes and Pharisees created loopholes. And you know the great thing about uh, having a loophole with an oath is you can look like you're taking an oath and also just get out of it whenever you need to if you don't want to keep it in the end. It's the opposite of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. Similarly, a tithe was 10%. Uh, and the Pharisees were so scrupulous about tithing that they not only tithed from their grain and their flocks, which was the biblical command, they also tithed from their spice cabinets, their mint and their dill and their cumin. And I'm sure that pastors and elders everywhere are, are excited about people who are this excited about tithing. Uh, but Jesus says to them, woe. And the reason is that while they tithed on their spices, they neglect what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. You see, not all laws weigh the same. Some are more important than others. And Jesus says the weightier ones are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's referring to Micah 6.8, which we read earlier in our confession time, do justice, especially towards the poor and the hurting. 
love mercy, have a heart for others, for the poor and the weak and the difficult to love, and walk humbly toward God. Faithfulness should be directed toward God himself. That's the weightier part of the law. Uh, now, something I think that's very interesting is tithing, as I mentioned, was not actually an express biblical, sorry, the tithing of spices. The tithing of spices was not actually an express biblical command. Uh, it, uh, this idea of like tithing mint and dill and cumin uh, was really a Pharisaic extension of the written Torah. It's what uh, people call oral Torah or rabbinic tradition or what we might just call tradition. But Jesus doesn't say, you know what? You should just ignore these silly minor traditions of the Pharisees about herbs and spices because they're dumb and they're not biblical. If you look at the end of verse 23, you'll see what Jesus does. He actually affirms the tithing practices of the Pharisees and tells people to do them. But he says, do the weightier commands of the law first without neglecting the others. See, traditions are not wrong. We all need to find ways to apply biblical verses in our lives. What is wrong is neglecting the majors while being preoccupied with the minors. Tithing garden herbs is a fine tradition, like many traditions Christians have around Lent or Advent or other seasons, but not if it represents a false emphasis that takes away from the weightier commands of the law. Jesus gives this funny, uh, ironic rebuke in verse 24 for people like this. He says, you're straining out a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. Now, maybe the only thing that gnats and camels have in common with each other is that they're both not kosher. Uh, but straining at a gnat is this idea that you are scrupulous in minor matters and swallowing a camel uh, is a major failure, failure or dereliction. So it's this idea, in your trying to keep kosher, you're so concerned about that little gnat in your soup that you end up swallowing the whole elephant. Or sorry, camel. I think I kept saying elephant. I meant camel. Uh, big animals, you get them confused. Uh, I'm at a point in my own life and ministry where when I see people who are very zealous about the very minor points of doctrine or practice, I ask myself, is there a camel somewhere nearby? that they are swallowing. Jesus' way of living out Torah starts with the central values. It starts with the weightier matters of the law, and only then do the lighter uh, practices and traditions find their proper place. If our life doesn't follow that same kind of pattern, we might be playing with religion and putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay, the third pair. Trying to move along, sorry. In the third pair, Jesus speaks woe to those who focus on the outer life and neglect the inner life. Uh, so he refers to leaders who clean only the outside of the cup, 
Leviticus 11 says uh, that if uh, something falls in a cup that is unclean, the cup becomes unclean. What's in the cup that matters? The Pharisees went the extra mile and said, oh no, just to be safe, let's be concerned about the outside of the cup also. Uh, the unfortunate result was that the outside became more important than the inside. And Jesus' rhetoric here is, of course, not really about cups. Cups are a metaphor for people. It's wrong to focus on the outer life while neglecting the inner life. It's wrong to focus on the appearance while neglecting the heart. Uh, you don't want to drink from a cup that looks great but happens to be filled with dirt, bug, and mud juice. Jesus says you don't want to be a person who's clean on the outside, but filled with greed and self-indulgence. Jesus also talks about washings. The Pharisees were fastidious about washings, and he's not critiquing washings, many of which were biblical, but Jesus does critique how it caused people to neglect internal matters. Outwardly lawful behavior can conceal a lawless heart. Outwardly lawful behavior can conceal a lawless heart. Tombs can be beautifully adorned, even though they're full of rotting bones that defile a person. Uh, it's so easy for us to neglect internal matters and focus on what other people see. Jesus' way of living is to clean the inside and then let the outside be clean as a result. When you conquer your inner life, then you will do outwardly uh, what you need to do. Uh, and this brings us to the last woe, uh, which Jesus speaks against the scribes and the Pharisees who claimed that they never would have killed the prophets, never would have murdered uh, any of God's servants like their ancestors. Uh, and of course, we all look back on the past and assume we'd be on the right side of history. This is called hindsight bias. Uh, you know, anytime we talk about some moral issue in the past, we always identify ourselves with the people who are on the right side of things. Uh, we say, I would have never done that. And Jesus says, actually, not so fast because you're going to do the same thing to me and to my disciples very soon. And it's in this context that Jesus says what is perhaps the harshest thing in this chapter. He says to them uh, in verse oh, 20, 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. It looks like Jesus is almost commanding them, go ahead and do it. Kill me and receive the judgment for it. And I want to point out the way uh, that when you're familiar with uh, prophetic books, that Jesus is giving here an ironic imperative, which is something that the prophets did. I'll give you one example. Amos chapter 4. Amos says, come to Bethel and transgress. Go to Gilgal and transgress even more. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes on the third day and transgress. Sounds like Amos is encouraging the people, come on over and sin. 
Why do you speak ironically? Because you want your hearers to pick up on the irony. You want them to do the opposite of the thing that you are commanding them to do. So that when a parent says to their teenage child, go ahead, go out and drink, get drunk, and smash your car into a telephone pole, the child does not say, oh, thank you very much, now I have your permission. The goal is to wake the child up to the real danger of what they are potentially going to do. And Jesus, in this passage, is deeply concerned for the leaders that he is speaking to. Jesus' offensive language should not be understood as hatred or his despising those leaders and what they have become. It should be heard as a last-ditch, love-motivated attempt to shock people that he cares about into realizing their dire situation. He wanted to save scribes and Pharisees and the crowd from a life that looked like it was in communion with God, but really was not. He wants to save us from that kind of life too. Uh, and this leads us to the very last point here. We've seen what Jesus is doing. We've seen what Jesus is saying. It's very important that we see what Jesus is feeling. Because in the last part of the passage, we see very clearly the heart that is behind Jesus' difficult words in this passage. Jesus does not follow up the seven woes by expressing rage, tearing off his garments, flipping over tables, driving people out uh, of the area. He follows it up with a deep expression of profound love. And here the chapter that has some of Jesus' harshest words in Scripture also has some of his most compassionate, tender words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Uh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem hearkens back to David's heartfelt words of lament, Absalom, Absalom. Jesus is deeply moved for his people. Jesus is deeply moved for his city, despite their opposition and the judgments in store for it. His only desire in speaking this way has been to gather his children Jesus describes himself as the mother hen who wants to gather her chicks. Here he's using a very feminine image that portrays his desire to nurture and to protect. Yet Jesus says that the people were not willing. It's a striking description of a clash of wills. Jesus willed wished, desired to gather, but they did not will, wish, desire to be gathered. And his own sadness 
at their refusal to respond to him is over this clash of wills. I wonder if we see Jesus' loving lament when our will clashes with his. I get concerned about uh, a presentation of the gospel that talks about forgiveness as if sin no longer breaks Jesus' heart. Isn't it great, someone says, 13 seconds after they sinned, uh, Jesus forgives sin. We're justified. Amen. It's all good. We should remember our refusal to listen to Jesus always brings painful consequences that bring him sorrow and grief, even in the face of real forgiveness. So Jesus speaks an ominous warning about divine abandonment. He says, your house will be left to you desolate. When we ignore Jesus and his words, we are left desolate. And yet even as Jesus announces this word of judgment, he also gives a word of hope. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, those are the words shouted in chapter 21 when Jesus entered into Jerusalem uh, and the crowds uh, welcomed him. Whenever there is a joyful acceptance of Jesus as the one who comes in God's name, doom and turn into blessing. The last word for Israel is never abandonment, but hope. When they bless him, when they welcome him in faith, it will lead to blessing and even to consummation. You can look at Romans 11 for that. There's a whole chapter in the Bible about it. Uh, that is also true for us. The reason is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, even in the face of our failures. I think the picture, just to wrap all of this up, I think the picture of Jesus we're getting in this passage is someone who is tremendously fierce, but who is also tremendously tender-hearted. He loves his people with everything in his power. He wants to wake them up to the danger of when they refuse him, but he offers that word of hope that turns doom into promise. The tender lamb of God is also the fierce lion. Jesus is good news because he is both strong enough and tender enough to overcome the bad news of sin and death. Uh, Jesus' power and his tenderness are never in competition with each other. They're never a zero-sum game, you know, like some people want to have the super tender Jesus and other people want to have the toxic or whatever. These things are not in competition with each other. Jesus' power and his tenderness work in concert together for our redemption and our salvation. It is that fierceness, it is that tenderness that takes Jesus to the cross where he is more than just a prophet for us, but a savior. I think the emphasis in these woes, while for certain rel religious leaders in Jesus' day, they are things that we all know. In our life with God, we try to make things harder 
than they have to be. We give ourselves loopholes and exceptions while expecting more from other people. We avoid the weightier commandments of the law and we make ourselves feel good about the smaller things that we do. We focus on the external and the internal as if God is like people who can only see what's on the outside. We engage in a clash of wills with Jesus. We don't always want to be gathered in a way that leaves him lamenting. But we have a fierce and a tender Savior, one who fights for us, who warns us, who wakes us up, and who loves us. And as we turn to him in repentance, as we bless him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, he gives us forgiveness and hope. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this image of our Savior as our fierce and tender Redeemer. Uh, we pray, help us to lean into these truths in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.